Hello and welcome to Crosscut Talks, a podcast replay of Crosscut's live interviews with the people who shape our world. I'm Mark Bumgarten, news and politics editor at Crosscut. The 2020 election is almost a year and a half away, but the race is already on. There are two dozen Democratic candidates and one Republican lining up to challenge President Donald Trump, and the news cycle is dominated by big questions about who can win and how. So Crosscut gathered a panel of pundits from the Seattle area to weigh in on the big issues, assess the candidates, and speculate on Trump's chances for a second term. Michael Medved is an author and radio show host, known for being among the few right-wing political commentators to speak out against Trump during the 2016 race. Christopher Parker is a professor of political science at the University of Washington. He is the author of two award-winning books that explore the intersection of racism, social movements, and democracy. Chris Vance is the former chair of the Washington State Republican Party. He left the party in 2017 and launched an effort to help elect independent candidates. He has since put that on hold and is now working as a public affairs consultant. Sharon Mast is the secretary of the Western States Caucus of the Democratic National Committee. She was one of 17 superdelegates to represent Washington State at the party's convention in 2016. Crosscut staff columnist Knut Berger moderated the discussion. The conversation was recorded on June 13, 2019 at Fremont Abbey in Seattle as part of Crosscut's News and Brews series. So I'm going to start off by asking each of our panelists a separate question, and then we'll go into additional questions in more of a free-for-all mode. Uh, and I'm going to start with Chris, uh, Chris Vance. Chris, uh, you've told me that there is only one issue in this campaign. What is it? Donald Trump is... No, really. Um, it, it, it amazes me when people try and overthink this. Um, from the moment Donald Trump came down that escalator in Trump Tower and announced he was running for president, he has completely dominated American politics. And the, he is the entire issue. Now, an incumbent president running when the unemployment rate is at all-time lows, the country is as close to being at peace as you can be. There's no terrible divisive war going on. Um, he should cruise to re-election, but he will not cruise to re-election. If the election were today, he would lose, um, and his path to actually getting re-elected is very, very narrow, and it's entirely because of him. And I, I do not, do I actually need to go in and talk about what that means? I mean, every American has had well over three and a half years now <clears throat> to observe this man up close, and people have made up their minds about Donald Trump. His approval rating is, hardly moves at all. It is at, there, some presidents' approval ratings have been actually been lower, but his has never gotten above anywhere near 50%. And Americans have made up their mind about him. He is the complete and total issue. And I'll just say one more thing, Newt. The reason he is probably not going to be reelected is in the 2016 election, he won independence by a margin of 46% to 42%. He won among the independents. 
Today, in the most recent Quinnipiac poll, he trails Joe Biden by 20 points among independents. He has spent his time in office infuriating and alienating moderate, independent, suburban voters, particularly women, particularly college-educated women. And that's why he is politically crippled, and unless the Democrats blow it, he's going to lose. All right. Sharon, I want to come to you next, uh, because I thought maybe you could lay out quickly some of the changes in the party, in the Democratic Party, that we should be looking for as we watch this nominating process. Uh, uh, 2020 is not 2016. You're a superdelegate. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what to expect. Well, okay. <clears throat> okay, uh, first of all, this is the first time we've had this many candidates in the race, and, and it's sort of a, uh, an amazing wealth of, uh, of a gift of wealth. And, and I will say that after 2016, there was concern about transparency, there was concern about, about people trusting the process, and there was really a great deal of, of questioning of how that was done. Prior to any of the candidates getting in this go-round, um, the DNC decided on the uh, debate schedule that they were going to propose, and they um, expanded it for more opportunities, and <clears throat> they brought in the main press, and it's a, it's a very different um, outlook. I don't think anyone anticipated 24 candidates, and, uh, and that, that is driving some of the dynamics. Now, the, the uh, rules for the debate were, um, they were put on by the DNC, and uh, we as a body of the, of the representatives that are voting, we weren't included in that process. So this is coming out of um, the DNC itself. And so I'm assuming that after the um, first debate in uh, June 26th and 7th in Miami, that we're going to see perhaps, I'll say perhaps, a few candidates that aren't going to be able to continue on. And, um, and so as it goes along, um, we'll see um, people rising to the top of, of this process. Did you want to know any more about, yeah, about what we're doing yeah, we'll with the superdelegates? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, yeah. Um, as you know that one of the things when the um, Unity Commission was brought in, they uh, wanted to see the um, superdelegates not have a vote on the first ballot, which we don't. And so um, that is a, a first change. So that's one of the things that came about. And we won't have a vote unless we have a, um, a contested primary. We'll call, I mean, a contested uh, convention rather than calling it a brokered. I think that's kind of no longer an appropriate word, but contested works. And then there would go to a second ballot, and that's a whole different um, set of rules. So if they can't make a decision on the first ballot, the superdelegates can vote on the second ballot. And, uh, and who knows what will happen after that. Well, if, if we have that many people that someone can't rise out of that with a majority, um, that will be quite a question about, about their skill set, I think. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Uh, Michael, I, I wanted to ask you two related questions. 
why are local Trump supporters shy about speaking up? And why won't more so-called conservatives come out and challenge Trump? You know, it's, it's funny. I get calls and letters and emails from Trump supporters who despise me and hate my guts and uh, threaten me. And uh, they're not shy at all about that. And they're local, some of them, many of them. I, um, so I'm not sure I buy the, first, the premise of the first question. I mean, one of the things about Trump true believers and it's really, really important, I think, that people here tonight, where I assume there are not a lot of Trump true believers, um, you, you've got to understand that for people who believe in President Trump, they really do. They really do. I, uh, I just attended my college reunion, and I ended up in this incredibly angry midnight, uh, after a few beers, conversation with a classmate who was a successful eye surgeon, right? He, he went to Yale and Harvard Medical School. He was a bright guy. And he was arguing that Trump is the greatest president we've ever had. No president has ever had the kind of opposition. No president has ever shown the, the courage and the integrity and the character. And, and, and Trump's going to win in a landslide. He's going to carry all 50 states. And, Honestly, th this was not a crazy person. This is a, somebody who pr performs ophthalmologic surgery, right? He had problems with his own vision, but um, <laughs> at least politically. So that's on, on question number one. Question number two, uh, why don't more Republicans uh, speak out against Trump? Uh, because they like their jobs. Uh, I, by the way, I've, I've got to to say that uh, Chris Vance deserves all the credit in the world as somebody who was state party chair and was in the state senate and basically and was our nominee for United States Senate. And we last time I was on a panel like this with Chris, he couldn't have been more ferocious and direct to booze from the audience about rejecting Trump and Trumpism and what it stands for and what it means. Um, <laughs> But uh, look, the, the level of pressure from uh, inside the conservative bubble is truly intense because this goes back to the first question. If you understand that the people who believe in President Trump really, really believe in him, they think there is something wrong with you if you don't see that he has made America great again, that we have the greatest economy we've ever had, that America is respected in the world again. I, I mean, just uh, you, you hear that all, all the time in the conservative bubble. And what surprises me and disappoints me in particular is some of the leading Republicans um, in, in the Senate in particular, where Republicans still control a majority, who, uh, who are pretending uh, basically that everything is copacetic and fine, and it's not. I mean, the conservative movement is in crisis. The Republican Party is in crisis. The Republican Party has a very, very 
rough future, and not just in the state of Washington. Newt, really, yeah. just, I'm, I'm breaking into the format, but I appreciate those kind words, Michael, but this man... So Michael Medved's show was never just about conservative, but he was known as a conservative talk show host, right? He defied his own audience, as very few cons- Republican right-wing radio jocks would do, and it's cost him, really. I mean, I didn't lose my job because of it. It's really cost him. This is the guy with a lot of courage over here. <laughs> Chris, so I've heard you say that you think Donald Trump is going to win in 2020. And I want to know why you think that's going to happen. Is that a structural issue? Does he have a built-in advantage or what? What's going to happen? So I said this at the uh, Crosscut Festival. And there are many re- I think I'm the only social scientist up here. So I think, uh, and I do a lot of research on this stuff. And it pains me to say this. And, um, and I have to say that I know we all had to read this policy about, you know, courtesy and all this stuff, and not any disrespect to my fellow panelists here, but this, this really pisses me the off, right? I just got to tell you, right? So I'm telling you right now, right? It's just, he's going to win, I think, again, because for the same reasons that Michael just outlined just a, a moment ago, these people are true believers. And, and I've shown in my research and other people have shown in theirs is that these people believe that Trump is the last thing standing between them and the rest of us, right? And so there is uh, a lot of people think when they talk about, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's not um, sec- oh, secular, wait, 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 wait. It is uh, fundamentalism, right? That is not strictly a religious thing. There is also a thing as Richard Hostetter talked about um, in his book, uh, The Paranoid Style in American Politics. There's a thing called secular fundamentalism as well. So just think about this just for a moment. So when we think about fundamentalism, there, there, is a, there are fundamentals to everything we do. There are fundamentals to blocking and tackling. There are fundamentals to hitting. There are fundamentals to playing the piano. And what this means is, is there, just, there is a tried and true way of doing things. And when we think about secular fundamentalism, there is a tried and true way or way of looking at the world, right? Well, I'm just going to keep it 100%. I'm wearing my little Nat Turner t-shirt here. So I'm keeping it 100% here, right? So white people are on the top, white men are on the top, white women here, and then everybody else below them, right? And so that is the way that these people see the world. And once again, referring to what Michael said, look, Trump won 48% of college-educated white people. Let's keep this 100%, right? So this is not necessarily about education because these people also think in very fundamental ways, right? So a lot of people think that education is the antidote to this kind of reactionary politics. If we go back to the 1920s and the Klan of the 1920s, right, which was a national movement, you had people that were very educated that were part of the Klan, right? You had people that were very educated who were in the John Birch Society. You had people who were very educated that were part of the Tea Party, and you have people who are very educated that are Trump supporters, right? So let's keep this real. Education is not going to save us, right? It's like that simple. And one of the things that I want to try to say to people is that what Republicans do, especially in this day and age, they scare the out of their base, right? Democrats don't want to do that. It's about process. 
It's about everybody having a say. And I get that. In the perfect world, I understand that. But right now, we are in triage mode like a mother right now, right? We cannot afford that right now, right? We can worry about that later, right? It's about winning right now. But my fear, however, is that Democrats are going to continue. We see what's happening, and I don't want to... I don't want to presage what you're going to say about the whole impeachment thing and about Mueller, the Mueller report and about... <laughs> anyway, so what I want to say is, is Democrats, unfortunately, have to play the same game right now, for right now at least, right? We need to be very pragmatic and less idealist. Right. Does anybody else want to... <clears throat> Does anybody else want to add to uh, looking at the strategy for how? So, yeah. So, so I, I understand the professor's frustration and I share it. Um, I, but the thing is, I do politics for a living. I've done campaigns for over 30 years. Politics are driven by polling data and real research. And you're right, Trump won college-educated whites, you got 48%. But in 2018, the Republicans lost that same group by eight points. The point is, Trump's coalition that got him elected in 2016, like, a, like the moron that he is, he's pissed them off and alienated so many, okay, that I know people feel like, oh my gosh, he's gonna win because he won last time and it's so terrible. But I'm cold-blooded about this. I, I don't trust anybody's gut instincts, including my own. You look at the numbers. My friend Stu Elway's here, a pollster. If you look at the numbers for Trump, if the election were today, there's no path for him to win. Now, something may change, but take heart. He ain't winning, folks. I mean, the Republicans lost 40 House seats in 2018 and hundreds of state legislative seats and the numbers on Trump's approval rating in the generic ballot have not changed since election day. If the election were today, the Republicans would get their heads torn off. Okay, so l let me, let me, I, I understand. Hey, where's uh, Stu Elway, where, where are you? Okay, Stu, I used to run the Washington poll with Matt Barreto, right? And we, we were in competition for a long time. We need to talk. <laughs> anyway, I, I hear what my, I, my friend up here, Chris, says. I like your name as well. Um, <laughs> But the fact of the matter is, Chris, this is a midterm election. Midterm elections are generally low information, low turnout elections, right? This one wasn't. Wait a second, but 50 years of political science says otherwise, right? And so what I'm saying is, is look, I'd like to believe you, right? But I'm, I'm swimming in this data every day, right? And I know this literature, right? And I'm more on the side of of erring on the side of caution and saying, like, look, I would like to believe Chris, but that, right? We need, to, we need to think that this guy is gonna win because if we think he's gonna, if he's gonna, if we think he's gonna lose, right? Then more people are gonna be like, ah, why should I turn out, right? And I said this on a History Channel in 2016. People were like, hey, it looks like Hillary's gonna win. I was like, not so fast, right? Because you're gonna have people of color especially black people who are already mad at her for the super predator remark, right? You have younger black folks who are mad at her for the all lives matter thing, and they're gonna think like, well, she's gonna win anyway, so why should we even turn out, right? No, right? We need to err on the side of caution 
if we want this guy to lose, okay, right? Let, let me, if I can jump in yeah, here. Yeah, I, yeah. I, the, one of the things that I think is interesting is the betting markets. Because uh, this election already, the election for 2020, there is so much money in, invested in terms of people betting on Trump. And right now, according to the betting markets, uh, Trump is the favorite. It is, it is likely that he will win. And part of that is, it's not based on the trial heats. I mean, the most recent trial heats running against Biden, he was uh, at Quinnipiac poll, he was down by 13 points. But here's the, the crucial thing that I think we have to look at. Why were the polls wrong last time? First of all, you're right. That's what I was about to say. They weren't as wrong state by state. They were actually fairly right nationally, except there is one thing they got wrong. Is pollsters, and I don't know about Stuart Elway, but many pollsters discount people who say they're going to vote third party. Last time, they did. Trump's percentage of the electorate, which was 46% last time, was lower by two points than Romney's. It was the same as McCain's. Now, why is it that that McCain and Romney lost and Trump won, it's because third-party candidates in the last election, you can look it up, no one believes it, look it up, they got 6%. And that was Gary Johnson who was promising legalized marijuana and he was pro-gay marriage and he was pro-immigration and, and, and it was, uh, uh, I'm even forgetting her name, Stein, Jill Stein. And, and by the way, you can look in Michigan which was so close, Jill Stein alone, without Gary Johnson, got more votes than Trump. And one thing, if more votes than Trump won by, more votes than his margin, certainly not more than Trump, he won the state. Yeah, sure. and, and that's 21 electoral votes. The, the point about all of this, it seems to me, is that people do have to be serious about this election to understand that I think Chris Vance is right. The election is going to come down to a fundamental question, which it always does when an incumbent president is running. Do we want this person to continue in the White House? Do we want America to continue in the direction it's been moving? And, and I think that the, the, the true focus has to be to avoid some kind of third-party spin-off, whether it's Howard Schultz or, dare I mention it, an independent named Bernie Sanders, who is the one guy who could 100% win the election for Trump if he runs as an independent. Sharon wants okay, to jump yeah, in here. I was here. just going to weigh in because um, I agree with you, Chris. Right. The day that he was inaugurated, much to the chagrin of my fellow Democrats, I said, this man is going to get elected again unless something happens. And I, I just, I watch in marvel of what a really good salesman he is. I mean, this man, if you watch him, he knows how to market himself. And, and, and when you look at it, I mean, and people are buying it. This is what's amazing to me. And, and I just, I, I think that when he declared that he was going to run for re-election the day he got nominated, I mean, a, a sworn in, I mean, that's just mind-boggling. And you're looking at a pile of cash that's been accumulating there. And one of the things as Democrats that we're going to have to do is we're going to have to unify. And, you know, at the last election, um, that wasn't so. And, and we were our own worst enemy. 
And I think that we have to take a lesson from 2016 and see that we don't repeat it because those votes that peeled away for other candidates or for those folks that stayed home, they could have made a difference because when you look at some of the um, states where, where precincts, Hillary only had to have a few more uh, votes in a precinct to make a difference in a state. And I just think that's mind boggling. And people thought they were sending a message by choosing other alternatives. And as Democrats, I think we all have to take that lesson to heart and realize that only in unity, and I do mean unity, are we going to be able to make this happen? Since, since the subject of wild cards uh, came up, I want to ask you um, two things. Uh, and, but we have the president has invited election interference, uh, at least appeared to, and said he would be happy to receive uh, information from foreign uh, governments and whatnot. So one issue is going to be election interference. Is that going to happen? And also I want to know uh, either that question or impeachment, yes or no, will it help or hurt? Five minutes. Have we got five minutes? Yeah, go yeah. quick. Lightning round. Okay. <laughs> yes, the Russians will try and interfere in our election because they do this now in every Western democracy. It's part of their campaign to destabilize the West. I don't think it'll be as effective this time because people will be watching for it. Second, on impeachment, and I might be the only one up here who feels this way, I don't care how the impeachment process might affect the election because this is much bigger than that. This is about the Constitution. And if we are going to allow a president to commit multiple impeachable acts and then just hope that we unelect him, then we have crippled the Constitution. I'll tell you, if the Democrats do not impeach because, because of politics, they're just as bad as the Republicans who refuse to impeach because of politics. Where are the, where's the guts out there? Stand up for the Constitution and impeach this guy tomorrow. Yeah, I, I couldn't disagree more passionately. I, 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 I actually think a resolution of impeachment, if it passes the House of Representatives, and then, as it will, inevitably fails in the Senate because it needs 67 votes. You need 20 Republicans to vote to remove him from office and, by the way, install Mike Pence as president. You need 20 Republicans to agree to that. That will not happen. And the damage to the Constitution by another failed impeachment, a third one, will end up being far more severe, far more devastating than simply Biden, your time, you'll pardon the expression, and actually going out to win an election. That's the way the Constitution sets us up to get rid of a president who, um, who is a, a really a, a very potential, potentially great danger in a second term. Go ahead, Chris. Sure. You're just dying to say something. You go for it. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, so I agree with, uh, boy, you're really getting skunked up here, Chris. I, re I agree with Michael in the sense that um, it will inevitably fail in the Senate, 
Um, I do agree with you on one thing, right? It should be about principle, right? It really should be about principle. But it will have failed in the Senate, and then guess what happens? Then we get Pence, who compared to Trump looks sane, right? And then beyond that, he'll get a chance to run, he'll get a chance to finish out Trump's turn, and then because it's so late in his presidency, run two more times, right? So let's keep that, let's keep this once, once again 100%. So Pence actually knows what he's doing. You get a crazy guy like, we need to keep Trump in office right now, right? And as Michael said, so Andrew Johnson failed by one vote to get impeached, right? And then we had Nixon, he did, who didn't even try it, right? And then we had Clinton, didn't get through the Senate, right? And so now we have this, which will most assuredly not get through the Senate. And one of the reasons why is because these people who support Trump, they are diehards. These people will go to the polls come what may. It does not matter, right? And these senators are, are concerned with that. Don't get me wrong, they know better, but they want to get reelected because, as Michael said, they want to remain in office because it is, I mean, what, what's the old saying? Politics is Hollywood for ugly people. There you go. <laughs> well, I agree with uh, Michael, and I didn't think I would ever say that, but I do. And I also agree with Chris. And I think that you, you, there's no way after the entire process and it passes the House that the Grim Reaper in the Senate is going to allow that. There's, that's where you're gonna see unity on the Republican side, because they're gonna stand there and defy us, and they know it ahead of time. So I mean, the process is going to go to a point, and then you know it's going to stop, and they're gonna use it to their advantage. What, one thing very quickly about the Grim Reaper, uh, she means Mitch McConnell. Um, Mitch McConnell has a tough race. He is right now running behind a generic Democrat in, in Kentucky. Mitch McConnell is hoping, he is praying for an impeachment crisis where he can be the GOP hero in a state that Trump carried by more than 20 points. And, um, and, and basically, you're, you're not only rescuing Trump, by voting a resolution of impeachment. You're also rescuing Mitch McConnell, so good luck with that. All right, well, you, the panel has added heat to this warm room. Uh, we burned through the first uh, session, so we're gonna take a break now for about 10 minutes, and then we'll come back for the round two of our panel. All right. We're going to resume the panel with part two in just a minute here. So head toward your seats. We need Chris Parker to get something to eat. <laughs> we got we to gotta get his blood sugar level back up. <laughs> All right. So we're, we're partway there to 2020. Uh, now, before we start again, though, on your seat, you may have seen a postcard. Crosscut does trivia and bingo nights. And on June 28, 6.30 at Peddler Brewing, come for trivia and bingo. And I'll be doing a round of trivia, so you know the questions won't be easy. Test your local knowledge. In the second uh, part of the discussion, we're going to start getting into uh, 
the candidates. We're going to talk about the men and women who are uh, in the race on both sides. And uh, we're going to go through some of the major candidates. Um, because we were talking about Trump in the last section, um, we won't really get to him unless the panel wants to uh, talk more about that. But I did want to say, according to the latest approval ratings, according to uh, 538 website, uh, Trump uh, disapprove is 53%, approve is 42%. Now at this time, the worst performing president, um, the worst performing, performing worse than Trump in the recent history was Jimmy Carter. At this period, 29%, 20, well actually 28.8% approval. That was bad. But interestingly, the recent president with the highest approval rating at this point was George H.W. Bush at 73%, and he went on to lose. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I wanted to throw that out. Um, <clears throat> is there any possibility that uh, <laughs> Bill Weld the Republican running against Trump, is this even less than a footnote? Or is there any significance in him challenging Trump in the primaries? So I, I was talking to somebody at the break, um, a, a fellow former Republican conservative, saying, lamenting, isn't there somebody coming over the hill to save the party of Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt? And no, there isn't. Um, there isn't. And I've, I have been looking for this. I've actually been in discussions with people at the national level, like Bill Kristol, uh, who's been looking for somebody to run. There is absolutely no appetite within the Republican Party to oppose Trump. Uh, God bless Bill Weld for trying, but he's not going to be the guy. Kasich doesn't seem to be willing. The governor of Maryland just stepped aside. No, I'm sorry. It is now fully and completely Donald Trump's party now, and nobody's even going to challenge him. I, I, um, I want to respectfully at least put in a demural, if not an outright disagreement. I got, my, I got my start in politics um, as a junior in college when a guy named Allard Lowenstein uh, came and spoke, and I remember it like it was yesterday, and he spoke about Dump Johnson, and this was October of 67. He didn't have a candidate yet, but he knew that Lyndon Johnson did not deserve re-election. And as Democrats, and I was at that time, you know, when I was a teenager, um, the, the whole idea was, it was exciting, because I signed on for Dump Johnson right away. They found this senator from Minnesota that nobody had heard of, really nobody, Eugene McCarthy. And you hear McCarthy, Senator McCarthy, it has all kinds of bad associations in 1967. Joe McCarthy of Wisconsin, no, this is Gene McCarthy of Minnesota. And he did not win the New Hampshire primary. He got 42%. And the only reason he did that well is because President Johnson wasn't on the ballot. President Johnson won the New Hampshire primary 58% as a write-in. And it changed the world because immediately, like that, the New Hampshire primary was on a Tuesday. That Saturday, Robert Kennedy announced for president. And by the way, and I joined the Kennedy campaign and I was there the night 
of the assassination. But no one expected that Lyndon Johnson, who had won a huge landslide, not a Trumpian squeaker, but a huge landslide, to lose the nomination of the Democratic Party. It was impossible. If Bill Weld can get 30% in New Hampshire, it's a different world. Everything, everything will quake and shake. It damaged George Herbert Walker Bush, who you just mentioned, when uh, Pat Buchanan got 24%. 30% or more for Bill Weld changes the world and probably forces a more viable Republican into the race against Donald Trump. All right, well, is that a unicorn? Is that a... <laughs> All right. Now, what about Pence? I just want to throw this out there. Can Trump do better with a different vice president, or is Pence going to be... Is it going to be Trump-Pence? There, there, there have been rumblings a little bit that Trump isn't so thrilled with Pence, but um, the evangelical base of the party knows that Donald Trump doesn't spend much time in any church, or, um, and so they love Pence, and that's why Trump picked him in the first place. Uh, um, you never know what this maniac's gonna do, but he would have a lot of resistance um, among the evangelical base of the party if he dumped Mike Pence. Okay, uh, speaking of uh, wild cards, Howard Schultz has announced he's having back surgery, taking the summer off, now this is, I mean, we have two Washingtonians who have been mentioned in the president, and this is a long time since this has happened before. Um, <clears throat> Howard Schultz, uh, back, back problems didn't stop JFK, I'm not sure. Um, but what do we think about Howard Schultz and the possibility of a third party, a centrist party? Chris, this, Chris Vance, this is uh, your territory here. Yeah, I'm taking too many questions here. but. Um, I have actually talked to the Schultz campaign for the past couple of years. I've been active in an effort trying to build an alternative to the two major parties. Um, it is all premised on the idea that both parties are going to be insane. The Republican Party has already completely lost their mind, but the premise is that both parties will lose their minds and nominate someone like Bernie Sanders or some other socialist. Um, Biden has killed the centrist third party movement before it ever got very big. That's why Schultz is stepping aside, is you know, a, a centrist like Biden just takes all the air out of his campaign. The only, now I'll say this, if, 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 if something happens and the Democrats lose their mind and nominate uh, Bernie Sanders or any other Democrat who wants to destroy private health insurance, you'll see Howard Schultz get back in the race and it will blow up the two-party system because moderate voters are not going to tolerate that. Anybody um, else? I, I, um, Schultz? I, look, I, I think Howard Schultz getting back in the race or any formidable moderate um, candidate getting in the race will hand the election to Trump. Will hand the election to Trump because remember, it's a state-by-state -state election. And, okay, I voted third party last time. I voted for Evan McMullen because I knew Washington State was not going to be close, and it wasn't. But right now, people in the country need to focus on the idea that this is an existential choice. And by the way, I, I agree with Chris. I mean, I, I think that the Democrats could easily blow this election. 
When you have a president who is so questionable, one of the questions that we were talking about in the break was what about the president's role as commander-in-chief? What about his role representing this country abroad, his relationships with foreign leaders other than the love affair with Kim Jong-un, uh, not, not to mention his buddy Vladimir Putin? I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling. Democrats should not be talking about reparations. They should not be talking in this campaign about Medicare for all and getting rid of private health insurance. They shouldn't be talking about a Green New Deal. They shouldn't be talking about any of this visionary stuff. They should be talking about Trump, Trump, Trump. When you have a candidate with that many liabilities, that needs to be your focus. All right. Well, we're going to talk about... Oh, yeah. May I sure. On that? Yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, I mean, I'm right, right along with Michael on this. It's that, you know, Democrats generally want to talk about the issues. There are the most, the more, relatively speaking, at least at this time, intellectual of the two parties. But the problem is, is that, you know, what, one of the reasons why Republicans tend to punch above their weight, quote unquote, if you will, is that the Republicans go for your heart, right? Democrats go for the head. And as social scientists, we know that negative affect, pun intended, trumps, um, pun, trumps positive affect, right? And cognition, right? And that is the problem, right? Democrat, Republicans scare the out of their base. And that's why they're able to punch up most of the time. And Democrats want people to think all the time, which is a good thing, right? I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing that, but right now I want to stress this. We're in triage mode right now. And Democrats need to put all the playing by the rules, push that to the side for the time being at least, and get down into the dirt with the Republicans. Let's, let's ask our resident Democrat. <laughs> Are, are you guys thinking too much? Boy, that's a really uh, good question. And I would say probably in this case, I'll agree with you, Chris, okay, that <laughs> there's a lot going on. But right now, the latest poll that came out of the um, Des Moines Register that was just on the 7th, it showed that currently, and, and then I'm just going to nuance this a little bit, currently Biden has 24%, um, Sanders has 16 Warren has 15 and um, Mayor Pete has 14. I think there's some dynamics here that um, if, if Warren continues to start um, eclipsing Sanders, then how does that look? Because right now, um, Biden has a foil in, in Sanders, and that's driving some of the energy. But if it becomes Warren and a woman, and, and then Biden. How do the dynamics change in that? You know, I, I don't know. Chris, do you have a feeling? No, I, I do. Thank, thank you. Uh, I think that a lot of people, you know, want to say that identity politics is a bad thing. Not right now, right? People seem to forget that Republicans are playing identity politics right now, right? And, um, and so I think this is what my data suggests, is that, yes, you know, we'll probably lose some people you know, in the middle who don't want to play identity politics. But if we get another, let's just, uh, once again, if we get another old white man that's heading the party, people of color are not going to want to show up, right? Not going to happen, right? So we need definitely something different. And we need to play up, you know, feminism, uh, you know, people of color, you know, want to recognize that racism is a problem. And, and in this book that, uh, this forthcoming book that my co-author and I 
are working on, we show that if you change just the turnout of people of color by 0.78 percentage points, Hillary Clinton wins, right? The problem is this, that enough of them were not inspired by her, right? That is, that is a problem. We need to get more you know, women involved, and let's keep this real, all women are not feminists, right? Let's just keep this real, right? All women are not feminists. Um, what's Roy Moore, that idiot in Alabama, won like almost 60% of college-educated white women, right? So, we, so, so what I'm trying to suggest here, and there are many reasons for that, but what I'm trying to suggest here is that for right now, we need to be more pragmatic and get somebody who is going to play. Look, I wish we could fast forward right now and put AOC on the ballot. That's, that's what I would like to see, right? Constitutionally <laughs> ineligible. She's 29. I, she I, I, I said fast forward. Yeah. Well, let me, let me, but since we're, since we're getting into individual candidates, so the polling, it, there, I, I thought I'd like you guys this semi-lightning round. Each of you uh, respond, I'm going to pick the top seven candidates polling-wise. That means everybody 2% or greater. Um, and the numbers, the numbers from the uh, Real Clear Politics average, Biden at 32%, Sanders at 17%, um, Warren at 11%, I'm rounding a little here, uh, Buttigieg at 7%, Harris right on the heels there at 7%, O'Rourke at about 4%, uh, and uh, Booker at 2.4%. So this is the group. So pro or con, Joe Biden. Um, he's, he is maybe the only Democrat who could win this race. Um, now right now... This, this lightning round. So I'll, keep be, I'll try and be quick, but... Democrats have got to, boy, I've been dealing with this for decades. De Democrats keep thinking that if they move to uh, the emerging new demographic, they're going to win. The p voting population, the voting population is older and whiter than the, the general population. Donald Trump got elected because he won working class white voters. If the Democrats nominate anyone who's going to take away those people's health care, they will lose. And Biden is the way you hold on. Biden is the way you hold on to the white voters who have rejected Trump, who voted for him in 2016, but won't do it this time. Um, that's how you win this election is by go to the center. That's where you win elections. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about, and I'll tell you why. Anybody else here watch Nancy Pelosi's press conference this morning? I, if you read it, if you read it, it's, it's okay, it's, but to watch it, this is the biggest problem Joe Biden has. And the problem is that he's older than Trump, and Trump's already focused on that. By all reasonable lights, Joe Biden should be the best bet to win. I think the age issue is going to, um, first of all, the Republicans will attack it relentlessly, just relentlessly, and magnifying every gaffe, and there will be gaffes. And uh, I, I don't think Joe Biden is going to have an easy path to the nomination or an easy path in the election. Sharon, what about you? Can you, can you speak to this? Oh, uh, Sharon. 
just asking if she could speak to You're this. putting me on the hot seat on this one. Hot seat. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of different scenarios that can come from, from, you know, the distance that we have till we choose a nominee. And I think a lot of it is the dynamics that you were talking about, Chris, of just how um, people start shifting their viewpoint. If you look right now, of the four that I mentioned, they are 70 years or older. And so that, that um, you know, it includes Biden and it includes Sanders and it includes Warren. And Warren is the same age as Hillary Clinton. And if you recall, one of the comments that came out the last time was Hillary was too old to run again. I think that was one of the things that they put on her. And I'm just- Actually, Hillary's four years older than Elizabeth Warren. Mm, she, no. Hillary, Warren okay. is the same age Hillary was when she ran. Okay, somebody can Google that and correct me if they want. But, but I'm just saying that, you know, this is an issue for a lot of the electorate. And if you, looked at, um, if you look at a chart of just placement of the candidates, in this foursome is, is Pete Buttigieg at, I think he's 37 now, unless you want to correct me. No, 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 and I'm so, sorry. sorry. I'm just he's saying, 37. that's okay, I'm just saying. I mean, he's, he's similar in age to where, um, um, John Kennedy was when he started running for president, similar. So anyway, I'm just saying, and, and there's a, a big difference in just uh, some of their style, and I don't know, I'm probably avoiding your question with Biden. <laughs> so I'm gonna pass it to Chris. Thank, yeah. thank you. Um, so Biden is a no-go, and let me say why. I got one word for you, Anita Hill, right? Um, the way he treated her is I don't think it's just going to resonate too much with women. And then beyond that... She said she'd vote for him today. That, I, I, well, I don't think most people know that. <laughs> right? And then okay. beyond that... He will. Is, is, ...is that he came out against uh, busing uh, as a means of integration and educational equality. And I think that, you know, and if, if you guys don't think Trump or his Russian friends aren't going to play those things up, right, then, you know, I have perpetually sunny weather in Seattle to sell you. Okay, uh, so where are we on Sanders? Anybody? Oh, hell pro? no. 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 Sanders no. loses 40 states. <laughs> no, I, no I, think, I think I've made it clear how much I despise Donald Trump. I will not vote for Bernie Sanders. If the Democrats nominate Bernie Sanders, I'm not voting. I mean, and again, I, I want to say this again and again, because I'm the guy sitting up here who used to run negative attack ads against Democrats, okay? Everybody focuses on the, the millions of Americans who don't have health insurance, and we need to fix that. But the overwhelming majority of Americans do have health insurance, private health insurance through their employers, cops, firefighters, teachers, government employees. Any Democrat who supports just getting rid of private health insurance, the Republicans will shove that down their throat. It'll be a hundred times more powerful than the issues you mentioned. Okay, Elizabeth Warren, same problem. She's for, she's for single-payer health care, done. Anybody else? I, I, um, I, I, I'm not a supporter of Senator Warren in any sense or on any issues, but she is a very gifted candidate. You have to watch her before crowds. You have to watch her interacting with people. Uh, one of the questions that I... I comes to mind for me is who would be most entertaining in a debate with Trump? Elizabeth Warren would eviscerate him. 
a, a debate between Elizabeth Warren and Donald Trump would, would be, uh, I was about to say the, uh, uh, the, the Everett uh, Aqua Sox against the Mariners, but the Aqua Sox might win that one. Um, <laughs> it would be the Everett Aqua Sox against the Houston Astros. It wouldn't be good. Kamala Harris. Now Kamala Harris would kick the dog out of Trump in a debate. Are you kidding me? Right? He would get pissed off that there's just a woman of color that has the temerity, the unmitigated gall to be on the same stage as him, right? And Kamala Harris would eat him alive, right? Seriously. I, oh, I love me some Kamala. Love Kamala. Anybody else? <laughs> Kamala Harris is a co-sponsor of Bernie Sanders' health care bill. Now, look, I said at the beginning, right now, Trump would lose to anybody, and he would. And, and any of these Democrats might beat Trump. But here, if you nominate anybody who is going to take away the health care of most Americans, now it's a, it's a coin flip. If you, Democrats have got to avoid that trap. Kamala Harris is for Medicare for all. Anybody else on that? Okay. Uh, Buttigieg, the mayor. Yeah, what do we think I, look, collectively? Uh, Pete Buttigieg, who would be by far the youngest president ever elected at 37, uh, Kennedy was 43. Theodore Roosevelt became president through assassination. He was 42. Buttigieg is 37. But he's, he's very clever. And he's very good on camera. And I think he, what, what he does is because he is a man married to a man, there is something radical about his very candidacy. So that has the radical juice at the same time that his means of communication and to some extent the substance of what he's saying I think is very reassuring to people I, I think that when it gets down to the final three or four, Mayor Pete will be there. And I, I think he has, he has been careful what he says about health care and other issues. I think he is by far the, the most articulate candidate, and I think he has the ability to get to the center where these senators don't, I don't think. I don't think the country's re I, I just don't think the country's ready for that, right? I would love to see it. He's a veteran, right? So that definitely helps, right? Um, but I just don't think, I, there are a lot of people that just are not ready for that, right? I, 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 you know, I like him. I think he's really smart. And I think he's, I shudder to use the word articulate because that's what's used on people of color all the time. Like we're not supposed to be able to speak English, right? Um, so, um, so I just, I think, I, I think he has really good ideas, but I just wonder whether or not the country's ready for it. I've heard what Chris is saying, and, and I say, you know, I've heard Democrats actually say to me, which shocked me, that they would not vote for a man that was gay. And I, you couldn't say the word Chris, but I, I'm saying it out loud, and I've, and I've heard this from Democrats. And I think this is unfortunate because um, if you watch Mayor Pete when he's speaking and, and the way that he handles everything that Trump throws at him, he just doesn't let it phase uh, him. He doesn't let it um, take him in a direction from where he's going. And I think that this is a, a really a strong skill. Uh, you know, I just think that some of the candidates might be a little bit um, more, um, I don't know what you want to call it, demonstrative, how's that? And, and he's, he's not, that's not his style. 
And so I just think that, that I wouldn't rule out the fact he will be toward the top, but I do hear what you're saying, Chris, because I've heard it from Democrats. Let me just say, if, if um, we're talking about imagining debates, and there will be, I think, at least three. Trump seems to say that he wants more presidential debates than just three. And if it's Pete Buttigieg versus Donald Trump, that's pay-per-view. That's gold. <laughs> you have a decorated Afghanistan veteran who speaks eight languages, is a Rhodes Scholar, is a churchgoer who knows his Bible. When, when, um, when they ask Pete Buttigieg, what's your favorite Bible verse, he can give you a bunch of them. When they ask President Trump, what's your favorite Bible verse, he answered like Sarah Palin with the newspapers. Oh, all of them. They're all so great. I can't pick just one. Okay, it's the, the debate between Donald Trump and Pete Buttigieg um, would, would come down to which man is more manly. And I don't think there's any question who wins that confrontation, and it's not the President of the United States. Uh, okay, two more here. Uh, Beto O'Rourke. Um, he's another Democrat who has the capacity to get to the center. He has not sponsored health care legislation on single payer. Um, he's also, I mean, everybody thought he was the rising star before uh, Mayor Pete got into it. Um, I think, I don't think he'll be the nominee, but he would beat Donald Trump because I think he could hold on to moderate suburban voters. All right. I, I, I think there are too many too many questions about Beto. I don't think he's a viable candidate. Um, I don't know if you followed this whole thing about the story about him feeding uh, the proceeds of a diaper to his wife. Uh, do, you, do you remember what a big deal it was that Mitt Romney had his Irish setter on the roof of his car and Gail Collins, every single column mentioned that? Um, Beto O'Rourke has about five things like that. Uh, some of which are not repeatable in polite company, but I, I don't think Beto's um, going to, uh, to come close to winning this nomination. Uh, Cory Booker. Hell no, no. The way he prostrated himself to uh, Grassley during the, um, the, the uh, Kavanaugh hearings, I just, I can't. Black people don't even like him, so that's all I got to say about that. Co-sponsor of Bernie Sanders' health care bill. Same thing. All right. Uh, now, uh, I'm good, before I throw it open to candidates not mentioned, that may be on your list, uh, uh, thumbs up or thumbs down, we have to talk about Jay Inslee. Jay Inslee, hometown, hometown candidate Jay Inslee. He has the same chance as the Mariners have of winning the World Series this year. <laughs> I, I, am, I thought Jay would do better than he's doing right now because he has done something very smart, which is just focus on one issue, which is the most very, very powerful issue with the Democratic base, which is climate and the environment. Um, he is also a Democrat who uh, local Republicans would throw up if I said that. He's a moderate. He's a centrist. Uh, he's another guy that could get to the center and hold on to suburban voters. 
but his, his campaign's just not getting any traction at all. Okay, I've got a list here, which I'm not going to read because we're short on time, of the 20 candidates who have qualified for the debates. Now, we have, we've only talked about seven here, not uh, on the Democratic side. Who would you like to mention? Who's not getting their due? What, what, I, what I'd like to mention, and it, it, again, I don't think this is such a far-fetched possibility right now. And just to play this out for a moment. And it's a candidate we haven't mentioned so far. In fact, very few people have mentioned her. Um, but she is the one candidate who honestly could come close to a 50-state sweep. I mean, really, really big time. Michelle Obama? It is Michelle Obama, yeah. And, and by, by the way, I'll tell you why it's not far-fetched. It's a little bit far-fetched. But as, as um, you were saying, right now we, we have different rules where, for instance, in the California primary, any candidate who gets 15% or more in a congressional district is going to bring home delegates from California. California primary is March 3rd, it's Super Tuesday. It's going to be very divided. There are going to be six or seven candidates who come out of California with delegates. It is extremely likely that for the very first time since 1952, the convention will go to a second ballot or a third ballot. And that means that the superdelegates, including the superdelegate right to my right, will be able to get together and choose the best candidate to run and win. I don't, I'm not sure Michelle Obama wants it. It doesn't matter. In that kind of situation, with a divided Democratic Party, she's the one candidate who could unite the party and probably unite the country. She's a natural politician in a way that her husband isn't. And, uh, and I honestly think she is Donald Trump's worst nightmare. So, okay. All right, can anybody beat that? No, yeah. no, mine's much more boring, but it, it illustrates again my point. The, Amy Klobuchar, senator from Minnesota, from the Midwest. Why does Trump president? because he won Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. She's been winning elections among those types of voters. She is a moderate, centrist Democrat who doesn't support taking away my health care. Again, the key for the Democrats is how do you win back working class white voters and suburban women? And Amy Klobuchar, her campaign's getting no traction, but if she were the Democrat nominee, she would win by a landslide. So, I mean, so there's this misnomer out here that Trump won working class. Okay, it depends on how we define class. If we define it by income, Hillary Clinton actually won more working class white people, right? Let's just keep that real, right? So, second of all, uh, the last time I looked, there were black people that were working class, there were Latinos that were working class, there were Asian Americans that were working class, right? So, I just, that, I, you don't, you, man, my God. Right, so wait till my book comes out. Or you can just read one of my articles, right? It's like where I talk about all this stuff. Like, so, and people want to talk about these uh, Obama-Trump flip-floppers, right, who were voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. You know what drove their vote for Trump? Ultimately, racism. That's what drove it. And, and so people want to say, well, why did they vote for Obama? You know why they voted for Obama? Because they thought Obama was an exception. 
That's why they voted for Obama. If you guys want more to read on this, I've, I've published widely on this stuff. I was even right about saying Trump was gonna win, right? Denny Westney wrote a column on my prediction last year in June saying, why didn't more people listen to what I had to say, right? And it's like, yeah, I said this guy was gonna win, right? And I think Trump, unless Democrats get their together, is gonna win again. Yeah, and, Sharon, and I wanna- uh, candidate? Uh, how about not candidate process? Oh, quickly. I, Okay, um, what I want to uh, kind of share is, is the kind of the elephant in the room, so to speak, is that uh, the state of Washington will no longer be a caucus state, and we're going to be having a primary that's coming in on March 10th. And, and so um, this is going to be a different um, look at our candidates. Now, as you stated, is in California, one of the things that's gonna happen with the um, delegation of, of delegates to the convention is again this 15% rule to the to the candidates and and um, the state party chair uh, forwards the names of the candidates to be put on the ballot and one of the choices also is uncommitted and the last time the state of Washington sent an uncommitted delegation to the convention was in 1992 and so this an uncommitted uh, uncommitted is treated like a candidate, and so people can make that vote. So it's going to be interesting dynamics to see how this works. Yeah. And why do I have to speak less than they do? <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm the only woman in this room, so I'm just saying. I apologize. We uh, are going to go to Q&A. And uh, they're flashing the uh, sign up there. So if you have your smartphone, this is how we're doing it. Um, you put your question in there. You can vote for other questions. Uh, I'll scroll through. I'm an incompetent scroller, as we know, uh, when it comes to technology. And uh, you guys will be answering questions from the audience here. Oh, yeah. We have index cards. If you do not have... A, a smartphone and want to ask a question, you can get a card and, uh, and w they'll bring it up. Yep. All right. Can I, while we're waiting for that, can I say a, a, a word here about something nobody's talked about, which is the biggest issue, according to all the polls and all the analysis that won the election for Trump, was the issue of immigration. And Democrats have been remarkably silent about that issue in this primary so far. They shouldn't be. Trump is incredibly vulnerable. The crossing of the border by illegal entries has tripled under his watch. President Obama and President Bush actually did a pretty good job in securing our border. And frankly, the, the American people overwhelmingly want comprehensive immigration reform that provides a path to legal status and, yes, a path to citizenship. The country wants it. People who have lived here, the average illegal today, there was just a, the Pew, new Pew study was released today. The median for illegal, unauthorized, undocumented people in the United States 
is 13 years of residence. Now, isn't that enough to force people to live in the shadows? This is an issue in Correct. which, honestly, the Democrats can not only rally the Democratic base, but can get thoughtful moderates and conservatives of conscience to vote for the Democratic cause. It is the one issue on which Trump is most profoundly vulnerable, where he has been a complete failure and, in fact, a disgrace. Okay. Uh, we're going we're gonna to go... <laughs> we're, we're going to go with some questions uh, here. And uh, Sharon, I'll, I'll kick this to you. Doesn't the Democratic Party's refusal to include Fox in the debate coverage confirm Fox viewers that the party is either afraid or dismissive of them? Yes, and it's stupid. Well, this is, I want to cheer, it's for Sharon. <laughs> it's a party question. <laughs> That's all right. Would you repeat that? I'm sorry. I was so taken by him doing an eloquent job. Go ahead. What was the doesn't, question? Doesn't the Democratic Party's refusal to include Fox in debate in the debate coverage confirm that Fox viewers, uh, for Fox viewers, that the party is either afraid or dismissive of them? Should should the Democrats be? No, I don't see why we would Fox? have to ask Fox to have a debate. I mean. They've proven that they are not um, a network that is, is uh, democratic friendly or even impartial. They've made that quite clear. So I don't think the Democratic Party has to, to include them at all. Okay. Um, the, uh, this is for the whole panel and it has a lot of votes here. Do you think democracy is inherently broken after a Donald Trump presidency? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, is inherently broken. Um, the one thing I will say, uh, a friend of mine just published a book at Princeton University Press um, in which he says that democracy, if you really think about what democracy is, and you guys might disagree, but trust me, you guys got to read this book, is that for democracy to actually work, there has to be at least one exploited group, right? And that's because democracy requires people to be informed, to people to participate in the democratic small d process, right? And that means that they have to have to have leisure time, and which generally means that they have to be property owners, which means that somebody's getting exploited, right? So let's just, I just want to throw that out there, right? Let's push that aside for right now. I don't think democracy is, a, is irreparable, but I think we definitely are clearly, I think, I think my panelists would agree, that we're definitely on a slippery slope right now um, because Trump is really doing serious harm, you know, to democratic institutions right now. Now, I don't think they're irreparably broken, and I don't think they'll ever be irreparably broken, right? But it, it's going to take some time, you know, to be able to repair them. So, I don't, democracy is simply any system where the people vote for their uh, elected officials. I don't think democracy is failing. What is failing is the American political system, which is unique in the world. Our Constitution was written so that nobody has any power. The House can be controlled by one party, the Senate by another, bills have to pass both, they can be vetoed by the President, they can be overturned by the Supreme Court, uh, and, and because of that, the Electoral College and all these different mechanisms that we created because we didn't want to be under the thumb of a king has made it where um, the, our system doesn't work anymore. 
Trump is the latest example. He's the worst example. But really, for about the past 10 years, the United States Congress can't do anything except keep the government open. And, and our, the system is completely breaking down. Um, and I believe eventually we're going to need perhaps a new constitutional convention. Um, I would love it tomorrow if we move towards a parliamentary system um, where one party wins the election and then they can govern because our system was designed on the assumption that reasonable adults would work together and reach consensus and, it, and that Congress would hold the president accountable. And now it, it is nothing but tribal partisanship and our system is failing miserably. Well, you know, oh, go ahead. No, I, I would be concerned about the fact that there's a silent uh, kind of situation going on. Um, it's a systemic situation where if you have not been paying attention to the court system and the number of judges that have been the ones that don't require Senate approval, the number of judges that are being put into place in our lifetimes we're never going to get out from under their influence. And they are going to start um, changing some of how we view the, the laws that we have. And I'm, I'm quite concerned about that. I mean, it's just really a systemic problem that's going on. And a lot of people are just not paying attention. And that's something I'm concerned about. Two things. Um, very quickly, the, I don't think that our democracy is inherently broken now. It could be in November of 2020. And here, Bill Maher, who is outrageous and funny and crazy, actually said something that I think is very thoughtful and very real, which is if we have a close election, what happens if Trump refuses to accept the result. He basically says, uh, the, the election counts were fraudulent, I don't buy this, uh, I was actually cheated, there were 15 million illegals who voted. You know, he said there were three million illegals who voted last time, that's why Hillary won the popular vote. They, they did a commission, they found less than 300. Um, okay. He's capable of doing this, and here's the problem. He's sitting in the White House. What if he tries to contest it in court? He will. Uh, what if he tries to contest it in the Senate? What if he tries to get the Republican-dominated states to recognize his continued occupancy of the White House? W there, you want to talk about a constitutional crisis? It's big time. And it's conceivable. The other thing is our system of nominating presidents and uh, it de desperately needs revision. And we need to do something about the Electoral College. And uh, yeah, I, I know a lot of people believe get rid of it. What I believe is it should not go winner take all. It should go by congressional district. And with districts redistricted, not in a partisan way anymore, but by a district commission, as we have in this state, which has not worked out badly. Okay, I want to get to another uh, question here. And Sharon, this is going to go to you first, because the questioner specified that. Uh, you've talked about, uh, you, uh, oops, 
Where is it? Oh, yeah. What is the, and this is for all of you, but with Sharon going first, what is the single uh, one thing that Democrats can do in the upcoming election to win? What is the single thing they can do to win? So many opportunities. I would say it's unify around the nominee and, and, and move forward in a unified base. I, I just think they're going to have to. It's going to be very difficult. There's a, a lot of money that's going to be spent on, on the Republican side. And um, I would just say unity. I probably, that's probably not what somebody wants to hear, but I think it's the reality of it. I think, that, I think the term unity, I, I agree with you, Karen, completely. I think that's exactly the right term. And there's, there's one thing that Americans should be unified about, is even those of us who never supported President Obama, who worked against him, campaigned against him, I did, but you had to respect the guy. I mean, he is a decent human being. And yes, he is a role model. One of the worst debates I've ever participated in was a debate with other conservative talk show hosts where I had a nationally syndicated talk show who was thundering, I don't want the president to be a role model. I don't need the president to be a role model. I have my teachers, I have my parents, I have my own role models. I don't want a president who's a role model. I want a president who wins. Sorry, that's immoral. And that's wrong. And the, the children of America, my children, our little grandchildren, deserve a president where they can actually look up to the guy or the woman. So, so this, question is, this question is really very simple, and I'm sorry, again, I do campaigns for a living. Anybody who's in this profession understands that the way you win is to get to the center. Roughly 35% of Americans are Democrats, roughly 25% are Republicans. It's moderates in the middle who decide, and it's, it's how it's always been. And, for, you know, when, for my entire career, the smart people in the Republican Party, including people like Karl Rove, would say, we've got to do better with women. We've got to do better with non-white voters. We've got to moderate. We've got to move to the center. That's how we win. Trump's crew has completely abandoned that. The only thing they care about is their own insane base. The Democrats can't fall into that trap. If the Democrats will stay in the center, nominate a moderate, not scare the crap out of the suburban middle class, they will win. That's the entire ball game. Okay, so I'm gonna have to disagree with Chris. Um, I think that Democrats need to scare the shit out of Democrats, right? I think that that's why Republicans have been so successful. And that Downsian, now that goes back to Anthony Downs' work, 1957, an economic theory of democracy. That does not work anymore, right? It just does not, right? And I'm telling you right now, just like I said in 2016, I've been, look, I've been right ever since 2010. And I'm saying, what's today's date? June 13th? I'm telling you right now, you're wrong, Chris. W watch. <laughs> Okay, we got a question here. There aren't any young folks on the panel. Given that the youth vote was one of the largest blocks to turn out in the midterm, how does that factor into 2020? What do we do? Because it's not true. I mean, again, when my whole career, people said young people, young people, we lowered the voting age to 18. Young people don't vote. They never have, they never will, they just don't. Uh, my kids will, because I'll kick them if they don't. But um, <laughs> But people don't start voting until they're about 40. 
And that's just the, and that's, again, if you're actually a professional running a campaign, you target the voters who are likely to turn out, and that's not young people. They are not one of the biggest voting blocks. All right. Uh, we have time for uh, one more question, and, and this is an issue question, and I know we haven't uh, dug into uh, the issues, but talk about the importance in the campaign or not of campaign finance reform. Uh, this is an issue Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are running hard on. I'm sorry. Again, moms and dads sit around the kitchen table and they talk about their, you know, nobody says, oh, gee, I'm going to vote for that candidate because of campaign finance reform. They want to know, what are you going to do for my health care? What are you going to do for my commute to work, make it easier, my kids' schools, war and peace? Voters have self-interest. They care about themselves. And very, very few voters are motivated by campaign finance reform. Um, so I think in most cases, you're right, Chris, but they, that they're self-interested. But right now, it's, this, it's about this tribalism right now, right? It's about they care about the groups with whom they identify. And, and I, think, I think right now, that's kind of where we are. This country, the last time this country was this polarized was during a civil war, right? It has not been this polarized since then. And so I, so I think that under most circumstances, I think Chris is right. But these are exigent circumstances, you guys. And I think people are, are really about tribalism right now. And I think it's about what's good for their tribe at this point. Anybody else want a final word? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I do think one of the things that, that needs to be said is that, and I think Chris began by talking about this, this is not a terrible moment for America other than our politics. American economy, it's not the greatest economy in the history of the world, but it's pretty good. It's doing okay. You look at your 401ks, look at okay. Uh, if you look at America's position in the world, I think it has eroded seriously. I, I worry about NATO. But there's no big major international crisis the chances are that there will be before November of 2020. And this brings me back to something that I think is, is one of the most profound things about politics, and particularly presidential politics, that people want to ignore. And it goes to my last point about, yes, we want a president who's a role model. Character counts. Nobody knows what a president is going to confront. George W. Bush originally campaigned. He wanted a more humble foreign policy. He was actually saying we have to de-emphasize our role in the world, and then 9-11 happened. Nobody expected it. It happened. And, and stuff happens, right? And it will probably happen to Trump. He is uniquely unsuited and uniquely dangerous for handling it. And that has to be the issue. A, a president that we can admire, that we can trust, that has the national interest ahead of his personal, narrow financial and political interest, those are the issues that I think will decide this election. I certainly hope nothing terrible happens between now and November of 2020. And uh, with God's help, and I believe that God does continually help 
um, this republic. I, uh, I, I believe we are going to see an election that gives us the chance of achieving the kind of unity that you mentioned, where people can come together and celebrate an inauguration and a fresh start in Washington, D.C. Well, Sharon, in, in regards to one. your question that, that started out uh, talking about youth, I've got to give a shout out for the fact that I can't speak for the Republican Party, but I can speak for the Democratic Party. And we have a very vibrant uh, young Democratic uh, group that is, that is coming to the party and is, is working for candidates and is taking their energy and giving it to candidates. So I think it's, it, there is hope, you guys. I mean, <laughs> this group that's coming in are gonna be coming in and becoming the new big voting block that's gonna be, be making a difference. So I give a shout out to the YDs and the fact that, um, you know, that they're there and they are, they are part of the party. And um, I don't see a lot of young people in the Republican Party, but I can speak for ours, okay? Great. Okay, well, let's hear it for our panel and for our audience. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Talks. This week's episode was recorded by Rusty Bacall and produced by Sarah Bernard. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And for the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.